0: Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, Is the Mind a Gift from God? Ken takes a look at what we can learn from C.S. Lewis as a public intellectual. That's for this podcast, Ken. Then you have another favorite podcast. on part two on the next one. Yes, that's
1: exactly right. Uh, I wanna talk a little bit about, uh, everybody knows about C.S. Lewis in one way or another, but I'd like to uh, spend a bit of time talking about him as a public intellectual and uh, the value of that. And then in our next program, we'll have another person Who I think, by the way, Lewis and and the next individual, I don't want to give him away too quickly, but I'm sure our listeners will be able to guess. But I think these were the two best read uh, public intellectuals of the 20th century. I mean,
0: I think that's a credible claim, which is an amazing thing. Hmm. Yeah. You know, as you were describing the podcast, it occurred to me, what if uh, Lewis had lived in the digital age? you know, exponentially greater, recognized as a public intellectual, although you've mentioned before that he's more popular today than he was uh, at the time uh, he was writing. So maybe he has been helped by the digital age. (laughs) Well, I I think he
1: probably has. Interestingly enough, Joe, he didn't drive a car, He didn't never used a typewriter. When people would, uh, when he received fan mail, he would write out answers, and his brother Warney would respond. But Tolkien had a car, but called it a, a jalopy, and wouldn't uh, <laughs> would, wouldn't use it. So, to some degree, they were kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe anti technology is too strong a word. But uh, Lewis thought, for example, when you write, and he would dip his pen he thought that a typewriter got in the, got in the way of, of writing in such a way that you had a style. So it, it, these were interesting people who lived, uh, Lewis and Tolkien, you know, they lived in Oxford, and neither one of them came to North America in their entire
0: life. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's dig into Lewis as a public intellectual.
1: Yeah, I thought I would give you a little definition for a public intellectual. I was looking a little bit on the web and some definitions for a public intellectual. It says an intellectual, often a noted specialist in a particular field, who has become well known to the general public for a willingness to comment on current affairs. Here's another one. When such a person decides to write and speak to a larger audience than their professional colleagues, he or she becomes a public intellectual, and then uh, one more. It says uh, a person who places a high value on or, or pursues things of interest to the intellect or the more complex forms and fields of knowledge as aesthetic, philosophical matters, especially on abstract and general level. Well, I think that C.S. Lewis fits that category of a public intellectual, and I think it's very important that Christians uh, be a presence as as a public intellect. And uh, Lewis very much was that. He, he had his area of specialization. Of course, it was English literature. Uh, some people have proposed, and I, I think there's good reason to believe it to be true, that Lewis may have read everything all literature with regard to the 16th century. So as a a medieval and renaissance literary literary scholar, he knew his field, but he also, uh, during World War II, for example, um, he was invited to come and give some talks on the BBC. And Lewis then became very well-known and he really was a public intellectual And in fact, some people thought, um, and Churchill was one of them, that those talks were so successful in terms of kind of bringing uh, British citizens back to their deep commitments of, uh, you know, patriotism, uh, ethical principles, that there was a a real reason Britain was fighting the war after all. Um, Churchill wanted to give him a medal. And uh, Lewis, uh, amazingly humble man. I, I, I'm, I'm stunned with his intellect. How humble he was! I think it's clearly the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. But he, he refused. He said, "You know, I'm just doing my part." So, Lewis fits all of those uh, particular categories as, as a public intellectual. Now, I want to spend a little time, Joe and Dave, talking about, um, talking about C.S. Lewis and books. And I'm sure many of our listeners have seen the movie Shadowlands. Uh, when I was at the Kilns, um, I think in, oh boy, what, what year was it? Maybe 2012? Uh, uh, I went to the Kilns and uh, Justin Brierly, who is a Uh, radio talk show host for Unbelievable. He gets a lot of the Christians and atheists together. Uh, Fuzz, myself, Hugh, Jeff have been on his uh, program. But Justin Brierly and I went over to the kilns and Brierly introduced me to Michael Ward, who uh, N.T. Wright has said is the greatest living Lewis uh, Lewis scholar. Uh, Of course, wrote the uh, uh, his doctoral dissertation was an explanation of Lewis's uh, ideas behind the Chronicles of Narnia. That he was appealing uh, to the seven planets uh, that were viewed uh, in the time of uh, of the Renaissance uh, and Reformation Renaissance period of time. Well, anyway, uh, one of the topics I talked to Michael Ward about is I said, "Well, what did you think of the movie Shadowlands?" And his comment was, great movie, but he thought it was kind of far off the necessarily the facts. Hmm. Um, but there's one line in there that always stuck out with, to me. It's when one of the students who had C.S. Lewis, and I, I want to talk more about that idea of what would it be like to be a student of C.S. Lewis. But the student says to Lewis, we read to know that we're not alone. We read to know that we're not alone. I love that. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I was not a diligent student. Um, I, don't, I don't know what I thought I was doing, going to school every day, but the priority was definitely not becoming a wise and prudent and knowledgeable uh, young citizen. I, I did it because my parents told me I needed to go to school. Um, but I know when I became a Christian right around age 20, uh, very soon after that, I realized that my mind really mattered, and I I actually owe that I think to Jehovah's Witnesses. They uh, on a couple occasions they pinned me, and uh, they showed me that I didn't know a whole lot about my faith, and I didn't know a whole lot about how to how to present my faith from the Bible. And I thought, wow. Um, you know, if I'm going to be a Christian, people are going to ask me questions. And if I say I believe these things, then I need to know how to how to talk about them, how, how to present them. Um, and, and reading is, uh, it's, it's become such an important component of my life. And I, I think that there are bookish people in life. And, you know, books become a, a, a very important part of their life. I, I know for me, Uh, I, I feel real contentment, uh, when I'm in a bookstore or when I'm in a library, uh, just being around, not necessarily even reading books, but being around books, talking to other people who like books, uh, leaves me with a, you know, a a sense of, of purposeness. And I, I remember as a young Christian, uh, I went over to a bookstore in the city of Lakewood. I wish I could remember the, the name of the bookstore at the time. I thought it was a very large bookstore had lots of books of, uh, about, you know, Christianity, particularly even the evangelical Christian faith. And I remember thinking uh, and I felt a, a sense of joy that, wow, all these books in here are writing about God. And I thought, wow, I want to, I want to learn. Um, I want to learn more about that. Well, let me um, let me mention Lewis and kind of give you some information about his background and, and then to talk about him as a public intellectual. Of course, he's born in 1898. So he's born in the 19th century. He's born in Ireland. Lots of people think about Lewis as being an Irishman, uh, excuse me, an Englishman, but he's Irish. And he never lost sight of how much he loved Ireland. Uh, He would, uh, him and his brother would go there on vacation. And many of the images that come out in the Chronicles of Narnia, no doubt were things that Lewis thought about as a boy living in this very green, uh, lush country. Uh, And of course, he, he was born in Belfast. Uh, I think that might have been the beginning of his idea of mere Christianity, because uh, Belfast in the 19th and 20th century, there was a lot of tension. Um, More than that, there was, you know, there's violence between so-called Catholic and Protestant forces, and and, uh, Lewis came from a very Protestant family, Um, you know, he, uh, he, some people said he is not the greatest uh, Irish writer for one reason. He has the wrong religion. He was a Protestant instead of a Catholic, and uh, Ireland is in large measure a, a Catholic country. But um, uh, you know, if, if I could, uh, if I could say more about him, I think what uh, I would want to communicate is that um, uh, he. You know, he is a storehouse of knowledge. He was uh, he was a person who was, uh, you know, a remarkable individual. And I have actually met people who attended some of his lectures. Uh, Dave, when you and I went with an RTB group uh, to Oxford, to England and Oxford, uh, we met John Lennox, who is a mathematician. And uh, Lennox mentioned that when he was first a student at Oxford, he went to a a lecture that C.S. Lewis gave, and um, he said that, uh, you know, it was like an event. Uh, When people went to hear C.S. Lewis, it was like, wow, a celebrity had walked into the room, and he said that uh, Lewis would come in, and he, of course, it was, it's often cold in England, there in Oxford, and you know, he'd be taking off his hat, he'd be taking off his, his scarf and his jacket, but he'd be, as soon as he walked in the door, he began lecturing, uh, and, and, and he'd keep talking as he's, he's, he's taking his, uh, his hat and coat off. But then he said after the lecture, uh, or right as the lecture began to come to a close, he'd pick up his hat, put on his scarf, his jacket, and he was out the door. And, uh, uh, Alistair McGrath said something similar about him. He said that C.S. Lewis um, was shy and suffered from social anxiety. I would never believe that. Uh, that just, I couldn't believe that when I heard it, uh, because there's a whole side of C.S. Lewis where he's very jovial, you know, he's he's loud, he's talkative, but there was another side of Lewis where you know, uh, he had, he had his own struggles in kind of his, you know, in, in relating in a, in a social kind of context. Um, but, but that's a fascinating story that, that somebody like, uh, Lewis would be, could hold people's attention the way he did. And of course, uh, the more I learned about Lewis, I learned that, um, During World War II, he would go to RAF bases and he would give talks to young men. And of course, these were young men that uh, many of them were not going to come back when they did their missions uh, because the casualty rate uh, among the airmen was was extraordinarily high. And that's true not only for the English, but for the Americans as well. Um, And of course, Uh, the Americans would fly during the day and the British would fly at night. That was the attempt to really put pressure on Nazi Germany. The the idea was don't let them breathe. Uh, We're going to press them. uh, And maybe maybe the German people will throw off Hitler in that kind of context. But Lewis would go to the RAF bases and he realized, look, I can't use my Oxford speak uh, because at that time in England, you either went to a trade school or you went to an elite university. Uh, there really wasn't kind of a community college. Um, and so when Lewis would talk to these young men, he realized, you know, these are not the same students that I'm addressing at Oxford University. So Lewis would talk about how important it is to speak clearly. Uh, and And he made the charge, and I think it's a it's a it's an interesting point that he made. And that is that a lot of times when we talk over people's heads, it's not because we're so brilliant. It is because we lack the skill to be clear. And uh, so he, he began saying, look, you have to be able to talk in such a way that you can bring people uh, into that kind of context. Well, um, it, Lewis taught at Oxford. Later in life, he taught at Cambridge. Uh, during World War One, he was a, a soldier. He uh, was wounded, and it probably saved his his life. I've talked a little bit about his, you know, World War II ex- experiences as a as a BBC broadcaster. Um, let me also talk a little bit about his connection to the Inklings. Um, you know, L- Lewis is a he is really a remarkable person because. I know a lot of people who know, know about Lewis. I know a lot of people who are students of C.S. Lewis, and and some of them come from a very different point of view than I do. That is, that is, many uh, people that I know who love Lewis. It's from a literary standpoint. Uh, they may or may not know a lot about Lewis's apologetic writings. You know they may or may not have read miracles or uh, the problem of pain. And and so you get Lewis scholars, you get people who love Lewis coming from from very different points of view. But but this Inklings group is a a very big, important part of C.S. Lewis's life. Um, You know, he was a writer, Um, And he got to know people like uh, Tolkien and Charles Williams and Owen Barfield. He had these very uh, highbrow intellectual friends, and uh, they got together and they would read things they were writing. Uh, They played um, an important role in kind of supporting, encouraging each other. Uh, In fact, um, Tolkien said... Uh, and, and, and by the way, Tolkien and Lewis had a very close, intimate friendship. And then a bit later, that friendship kind of was frayed. There was a, a distance between the two of them. Uh, lots of Lewis and Tolkien scholars have written about this remarkable friendship that they had. Some think that maybe it was a bit more Tolkien's uh, problem. Tolkien was a little uh, insecure about Lewis's other friendships. And and I think Lewis marrying Joy Davidman without Tolkien ever knowing it kind of, uh, you know, put a division between them to some extent. But even even later, uh, Tolkien said that he probably never would have published The Lord of the Rings if it were not for C.S. Lewis. Uh, Tolkien was very fastidious, could never finish anything. He was a perfectionist and uh, Lewis just told him this is really good work. Uh, it's going to have a big impact. you need to finish it and and publish it and and of course uh, all of that was true. Uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, the last I heard it sold somewhere around 150 million copies. Uh, and Lewis even nominated Tolkien uh, for a Nobel Prize in Literature I think in I think in either 1960 or 1961 and I might also say that even though that friendship had gone south to some degree it really was Tolkien that played a significant role in Lewis getting a position uh, at Cambridge University about 1955 and um, Lewis is a very interesting person. I think he's one of the brightest minds of the 20th century. I think he was a great public intellectual. I think that he may have been the best-read person. Um, next show, we'll talk about his what I think is his major competition. But you know, Lewis was passed over three times for. Uh, prestigious positions at Oxford University. People have speculated why that was so. Uh, it's possible that some of the faculty were a bit jealous of him. Others uh, maybe were put off by his Christianity. Uh, but you know what's interesting here? You have this remarkable Christian man who's had an enormous impact uh, and and continues to long after his death but he had problems in his life. Um, you know, I, I don't think we talk enough in our churches about the reality of having disappointments and failures in life. Um, I, think, uh, I think we do a disservice to people when we do not tell our, our, our fellow believers that, look, life is not easy, it is sometimes not fair, uh, but if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is the most controversial person to ever exist. Um, you know, if you mention the name Jesus, you have, it either makes people uh, exorbitantly happy or extremely angry. He is a polarizing type of person. Well, if our, our Lord suffered, we're going to have difficult times. Um, and, you um, Oftentimes, the most important thing in life is not what happens to you, but how you decide to respond to what happens to you and to, to find God's will for you in that kind of context. Well, uh, Lewis was offered a position at Cambridge University uh, to be the chair of Renaissance and uh, English literature. He turned it down because he thought, well, I, I, I live here Uh, in Oxford. I'd have to take the train. I've got people that I work with who work for me. So he turned it down and, um, Tolkien heard about it and he contacted Lewis and said, look, you need to take that position. And he says, I, I think Cambridge will work with you and allow you to commute if you want to. And sure enough, that was the case. And, uh, Some people have proposed that Lewis's eight years at Cambridge may have been his most uh, productive period. So you have that friendship uh, with Tolkien and with uh, the various other inklings, and it's kind of up and down and all around. But without Tolkien, Lewis may have never received the the prestigious position at Cambridge. Without Lewis, uh, Tolkien may never have published The Lord of the Rings. Um, I mean, this is amazing friendship. But they, uh, you know, they were they encouraged each other. They supported each other, and uh, they were uh, indeed an intellectual community. Um, now, I, I want to say something. I want to say something about that. Um, you know, it's hard to always know what non Christians think of Christians um uh, you know, sometimes it ranges from, you know, maybe a uh, maybe a respect uh and you know, I don't necessarily believe what uh, what Christians believe, but I respect their convictions that they have um you know, uh they seem like decent people. Uh, that's probably one perspective, but there's also other perspectives, uh, that Christians are, are, are people of feeling, but they're not people of thought and reflection. Uh, other people might even go further in their criticism and say that, you know, Christian people want to control other people. They want to they want to push their worldview on, on non-Christians. Um, I think the point that I would like to bring out is that there are people who are non-Christian, who think that Christianity is really kind of anti-intellectual. And this is a topic we've talked about before, um, and I, I, I want to address it in the context of these two people we're talking about, uh, Lewis in this program, and then another individual. Um, you know, I, I think it's very important that Christians engage in the marketplace of ideas. and I, And I don't just mean becoming very... A scholar in your particular field, like for C.S. Lewis, it was literature. Uh, Dave Rogstad in, you know, science. Um, y- you know, you have you have people in philosophy. You have people in all of these fields. I think it's very important that there are Christian voices in society. Uh, that that even though maybe politics isn't their central field. Uh, that they can speak to political issues. Um, maybe, um, you know, cultural issues might be outside of their field, but they're able to kind of speak into those uh, areas of life. And, and certainly there are, um, there continue to be Christian people who speak in a public context Uh, There are certainly Jewish intellectuals. I think of Dennis Prager. I think of Michael Medved. uh, And and there are a number of people in that kind of context where they are religious, they have their religious convictions, but uh, they're able to kind of speak to the larger issues like like abortion, uh, like marriage, uh, like family, and, uh, you know, those kinds of topics. Now, this... This intellectual world, this world of books, this world of ideas—you um, know—not every Christian is is necessarily all attracted to all of that. Um, I meet people all the time, um, and they sometimes will ask me for a book recommendation, and and I'll you know I'll give them twelve. Here's here are the books you have to read on that topic, you know, and you know, they feel a little intimidated by that. Uh, But a a point I want to make is I think that Christianity is really a bookish religion. I think we are people of the book. Uh, and, And what I mean by that is not just we Protestants who affirm scripture as the supreme authority, that the Bible is the inerrant revelation of God, I mean it in an even broader sense. Uh, To be people of the book means that like the Jews before us, we've been given this revelation from God. Uh, Muslims even uh, claim title to that idea that they they believe they have a revelation from God. They're in that Middle Eastern monotheistic kind of tradition. But what I really mean by this is that Christianity and Judaism, in particular, are different than the pagan religions. The pagan religions they didn't really have a book; they uh, they had temple worship. Whereas Christianity, when it came uh, when it was birthed in the first century AD, um, it became uh, a faith that you know people studied. It, there were there were documents that were produced, manuscripts. Christianity became a world of of people thinking and reading and and studying. And I would say this: look, um, not everybody, not everybody has the same gifts. Not everybody has the same calling in life. Uh, you know, I've got five thousand books. Uh, I know because I counted them recently. Uh, I've got about 5,000 books. Not everybody is going to have a large library like that. Um, but but I think, for example, that anybody and everybody who is a Christian, that if you learn to develop your reading skills, you will be able to get more out of the Bible. If you learn to kind of think uh, and discern systematically, you will get more out of You know christian doctrine and christian teaching and uh i think to be a christian in the 21st century poses a lot of challenges to people um and i i think that the mind is the good gift of the lord uh, to help us use in that that kind of context and and may i also say this Um, i think we have a bit of a crisis on our hands Um, And what I mean by that is, I know a lot of intellectual people who feel like they don't fit in your average evangelical church. And the fundamental thing is, it's not that the people at the church are not gracious people. It's not that the people at the church are dishonest or anything like that. Um, There are a lot of intellectual people that I have come to know through Reasons to Believe, uh, through social media, through uh, various um, attending intellectual type events, there's a lot of people who think that the church is just not a school, that there is this unreached people group in the church and they're called intellectuals. And I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I I don't think, uh, you know, having and, and, and again, I want to be very careful because um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to put any Christians down. I, I don't want to speak in, you know, discouraging terms uh, to Christian people at all. But I think our churches need to be schools. Uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes is Yaroslav Pelikan, where he says the church is always more than a school. And of course it is. It's a place of worship. Uh, it's a place of fellowship. Um, it is, it is a a, a pla- It's sometimes a hospital. I mean, Christian people are are some of the best people in the world at knowing how to comfort and encourage people who are hurting. Uh, you know, it's 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 a place where we gather food to give to the poor. It's all of those things. But Pelican says. It cannot be less than a school. And um, I think that in a lot of evangelical churches in particular, it's not a school. And a, and a lot of people would like to, they want their Christianity to engage their minds. And uh, I think someone like C.S. Lewis, I, and, and I have to say, guys, you know, I go on social media and I and I, I and I have a strategy. I I try to go on there and I give quotes and I go on there and I'll reference books and uh you know I I'll I'll write about something that I've been reflecting upon and I you know I like to bring people in and, and encourage them about reading books and thinking about various ideas. But you know, whenever I give a Lewis Lewis quote. It just there's just a flood of people. I give a Ken Samples quote, and there's some people. I give a C.S. Lewis quote, and it's like, you know, the there's it, it, like a shaking, and I uh, I noticed that, and I think one of the reasons for that is that C.S. Lewis was not just uh, probably the world's expert on renaissance medieval literature but he was a public intellectual he wrote about christianity he wrote about suffering um you know he he wrote these incredible children's stories and um i can't tell you how many people i have talked to who who, whose parents read those chronicles to them when they were kids Or or who were parents who read them to their children, and they they echo. I mean, they're supposed to be children's books, but you've got people, you know, who absolutely love them. You have these remarkable movies that have come out, and uh, yeah, I think I think there must have be there must have been some special gift that C.S. Lewis had, and and he's not the only one. I would say that about quite a number of people, particularly within Christian history. But Lewis was able to kind of pull people in in various ways. So let, let me stop there for for a minute or two and
2: uh,
1: I, I'd like to hear from you, Joe, and from you, Dave.
2: I um, you know I obviously, based on you know our previous conversations, C.S. Lewis has uh, been a, a great source of interest and and uh, intellectual challenge. Um, just to studying his life, reading his books, some of them I uh, I'm not uh, quite as I, I remember reading The Problem of Pain and having some difficulty with uh, the Oxford speak that <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> came across in that book but uh the 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 uh, mere christianity of course is is the other end of the spectrum uh really communicating in very clear language key ideas of the christian faith i uh I've read some other books recently that I've really enjoyed and been intrigued with um, one was called um the um The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis by Mm -hmm. a name person, Jason Baxter. And um, the thing that struck me about that particular book and has kind of stirred up my thinking since then is that while Lewis was clearly familiar and aware of the progress that had been made in, you know, the recent uh, century in the area of science, and understanding what science has been able to teach us. He uh, still had a thinking uh, that was influenced greatly by the medieval, the sort of pre-modern way of looking at things. And uh, I think there's a tendency of people to look at the pre-modern and to think, well, they didn't understand. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of incorrect teaching and understanding of what the universe was and, and what sciences teach taught us in the meantime. And so they've kind of discarded the, the literature and the material that was was available to people at that time. But Lewis took a different viewpoint. And he he had the idea that that by discarding this stuff in the past, this medieval way of thinking. Uh, yes, you you got away from maybe mistaken ideas about what we've learned from science in the meantime, but you've lost a sort of uh, mystery and the intriguing, the, the sort of uh, creative aspects, the, the fact that God is behind all of this kind of uh, material world that we live in. And it's it's sort of turned it into kind of mechanical rather than uh, an exciting thing that we can contemplate and understand uh, the way God thinks about things and why he created the way he created. So that, that's an intriguing idea. And it's because he develops that idea in that book that he calls the, um, oh boy, now I'm not going to remember the name, the abolition of man. Right. And uh, so that's been something that, has been on my mind a lot. I wanna make one further comment about uh, your, your observation that in the evangelical church, there is kind of a, um, a lack of interest in intellectual things on the part of a lot of people, and that's true. Uh, this has been my observation as well, but what I have observed is that there's always a few people that do like to engage in the mind and thinking and, and reading. Uh, even people who are not necessarily educated, some of the ones that I've had the greatest intellectual conversations with have not been people who have been educated, but who are still, uh, you know, be, maybe because of their background, they weren't raised in an environment that led to them uh, going to college or yeah. or, or uh, you know developing their intellectual skills. But yet they're readers. And they're very interested in these kinds of things, and so there's always there was always some people, yeah, within any particular congregation. I think the pastor may have something to do with uh, what how that works out. I mean, maybe he himself is not particularly intellectual, and so he won't foster that. He won't encourage that within at least some subgroups within the congregation. But there's other pastors who I think appreciate the importance of it, like you do, Ken. Yeah. And, and we'll uh, will provide an environment for those who do like to talk about these kinds of things.
1: I agree with that. I I think you're right on, Dave. I I, I appreciate your comment about you know the pre-modern world, the way Christian thinkers thought about it, and. How it's become mechanistic, but I, I also agree uh about our churches. And that is, I've seen people that, you know, they don't have an extended educational background, but they fall in love with reading. They fall in love with learning. And um I I think that uh we can't give up on that. We need to we need to reach out and to and to and to communicate to people, look, you, you don't have to have an advanced degree. Uh, to read read some of the best books, uh, even some of the classic books, um, and and to learn. And I have seen in some of the churches that I've been a teacher at, uh, boy, some of the book clubs grow. And uh, you know, people come to me and they say, "Wow, I never thought I could, you know, read a book like um, Confessions by Saint Augustine." And I say, "Look." You know, he's writing to everybody. And uh, so, yeah, I completely agree. Joe, how about you? What are your thoughts about Lewis as a public intellectual and Uh, some of the things? uh,
0: Nothing particularly to add. I I was thinking along the lines of Dave was that um, there are some people who do uh, want to develop that part of their life. And sometimes uh, people are intimidated. Maybe I'll, I'll put it in the form of a question. If there are people like that, and uh, we all recognize there are, how would you advise somebody who might say, you know what, I really want to get around to reading. I've even got things written down, a, a book list, but I am just so busy. I'm a parent. I work 40 hours or more. Uh, it's everything I can do to get home and you know, have a meal and maybe veg out a little bit or go to the gym or whatever it is. And it's just so hard to get, get moving. How would you recommend?
1: Well, those are, those are real life considerations. And, uh, you know, we live in a fast paced society and, you know, people do have obligations on their job and, and, uh, with their children and things of that nature. Uh, you know, what, what I like to say is, um, you know, what if you started out small, um, what if you dedicated, you know, 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes a day uh, to reading? Um, what, if, uh, what if you took some of your entertainment time, you know, whether it's watching sports or watching movies or whatever entertainment you're you're involved with? What if it's watching some really instructional videos that are available on YouTube, you know, s- starting kind of small? what if you what if your your church uh started a book club and uh you know that would be part maybe maybe a wednesday night maybe a you know a saturday type of thing where you start reading and you start kind of thinking um you know human beings are very different than the uh, the animals or the machines um we're Exceptional creatures, uh, we have this capacity to to speak and to listen and to read and to write. Um, what I would advise, uh, Joe, is that I, I think pastors need to think about this. I think they need to think about uh, how do I how do I reach intellectual peoples who come to the church, uh, and how do I then reach out to maybe people who don't don't have a lot of it? Education in their background, uh, because you know the, the reality is to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a learner, and um, you know sometimes I'm I'm kind of amazed that people don't know about things like the Trinity or the Incarnation or the Atonement. Um, uh, that don't have kind of a basic understanding of kind of historic Christianity so you know I think things like catechism and uh, having speakers come to the church uh having classes I I I think every church ought to have a doubters class and and that is it's it's a class for people who have questions they're not certain they have doubts about Christianity um and you know kind of build that into the into the church. Um, and, and I think what's important here is this idea, a lot of young people are walking away from Christianity. Uh, I think we need those intellectuals to stimulate the young people in the church so that they'll remain in the church. You need people to offer critiques of, you know, scientific challenges to the Bible, uh, philosophical challenges to the Bible. So I, I, you know, what's interesting to me is, um, you know, I, I don't have a chance uh, to go to bookstores and to libraries as much as I used to. Certainly the pandemic has gotten in the way of a lot of that. But, you know, one day I, I wanted to buy some books for my daughter for her birthday, and I thought, well, I can order them on Amazon. Uh, and I'll probably get them cheaper and I'll probably get them quickly. Uh, but I thought, you know, I I, you know, it was uh the day before her birthday, I'd kind of procrastinated. So I thought, well, I'll just go down to a Barnes and Noble. And, you know, I was in there for three hours, uh, and it seemed like it went by in 30 minutes. Um, and you know, I talked to two different people about C.S. Lewis. Uh, one of the ladies there, um, you know, I said, "Where's your C.S. Lewis section?" And so we started having a conversation about Lewis. And then when I got to the section, there was a, a person there, and I said, "Well, have you read this one?" And no, well, I haven't. Which one would you recommend? Well, I, I turned around and I thought, "Boy, I feel, I feel uh, pleasure in being in a bookstore." Uh, and I don't necessarily have to buy any books just to go around and think about them. And I, you know, I go into sections that I like and I think to myself, I wonder what the author was thinking when they wrote this book, or I wonder people who come into this bookstore, do they know how much work it is to write a book? Um, and it, and I, I, I started noticing that, well, I'm having fun. I, I feel, I feel a sense of, you know, the pressures of life are kind of coming off. And I know in my office here at Reasons to Believe, I, I like coming into my office. I I like I like looking at my books. I like thinking to myself, oh, I remember I read that book, and I think, oh, I got to get back to these books over here. Um, you know, a, a bookish life, a, a life of the mind, a life of learning. I don't think it's only for people who happen to have three PhDs. I think it's a life that virtually anybody uh, can see value in. And I see somebody like Lewis as, you know, I, I mean, when people say that they sat in his classes or they studied from him, and of course, there have been a number of biographies that have been written by people who actually knew Lewis and were students of his. And I think to myself, what would it be like to be tutored? To be tutored at Oxford University by C.S. Lewis, you know how would how might he challenge you? Would you feel intimidated? You know, reading your college page paper to this, you know, this uh, brilliant uh, scholar. Uh, but you know, I then thought to myself: even though I envy people who studied under Lewis, I have the second best thing. I I uh, Lewis is my teacher um, because I read his books, you know, um, I interact with the ideas and, you know, what's really interesting is that reasons to believe, of course, we talk a lot about evangelism. Um, you know, our focus is largely the science faith focus, but we talk about, uh, using science as a way of communicating the gospel. And as I started reading about some of the great Christian thinkers, what I began to notice is that it's not just people in their life that talk to them about faith, but it's credible people in their life that talk with them about faith. And it's books that they've read. Um, Certainly the case with C.S. Lewis, yes, having conversations with other inklings, who were Christian, or who were religious, that had a big impact on C.S. Lewis. But he was also reading a series of books that was was challenging him and guiding him. I would say something very similar about St. Augustine. Yeah, Ambrose, Bishop Ambrose, one of the great doctors of the church in his own right, had a big influence on St. Augustine. But Augustine was reading books. Uh, And I think I think intellectual people, um, you know, I know for me, I have to have time of reading. I have to have my time of thinking. Uh, there are times where I'm, uh, I I want to watch videos of of very serious conversations of issues and just listen, and you know, to to get that kind of input in. So. Um, you know, if there are people listening to our program who haven't read, let, let's talk a little bit about some of Lewis's books. Um, in, in my book, um, classic Christian thinkers, I, I address nine thinkers and Lewis is the, the last chapter. Uh, cause I think he was a classic Christian thinker. I, I think he, he fits very well into kind of a classical Christianity. Um, you know, a, a, a Christianity that's deeply rooted into history, uh, to creeds, um, you know, kind of a classical orientation. Well, uh, here are some of the books that I mentioned in that chapter, his, the book, the problem of pain. I mean, uh, the problem of pain, it's just that it's a problem. Uh, when people are hurting, uh, it's hard to think about anything else when you're hurting, When when you have pain, you're thinking about your pain and you're thinking about you. And, you know, it's hard to, uh, it's kind of like life kind of comes to a halt when you feel a lot of pain. Well, why in the world would God allow that? Why, if God is good, if God is infinitely good and loving, why does God allow evil in the world? and that remains kind of a perennial challenge. Now, maybe the way to do it is not only to read um, The Problem of Pain, uh, but to read another book that Lewis wrote about the death of his wife, A Grief Observed. So here you get kind of two books. You get his uh, problem of pain is kind of his analysis, his logical, rational, uh, philosophical, biblical way of thinking about Where evil came from, what purpose does it have? But then in in a grief observed, you get kind of the raw C.S. Lewis. Um, You know, it's, you know, if you get too close to people, I remember a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, if you give your heart to anything, including an animal, uh, you can bet your heart's going to be broken. Well, uh, you know, the only way to avoid that is to totally isolate yourself. And that's, that's not any kind of life. Uh, But when you, I remember when I read A Grief Observed, I was like, wow, you know, this, this is heavy duty. So those are two books on the problem of evil. Dave mentioned the abolition of man, where Lewis delves into natural law. He looks at, you know, that all societies have moral principles. Uh, by the way, the abolition of man was is part of the great books of the Western world. Uh, Mortimer Adler put uh, one of Lewis's book in that context. There's the great divorce where Lewis has a, an amazing story about journeying both to heaven and to hell. You know, uh, when people are in, in hell, would they actually want to leave and go to heaven? Um he actually says the, the lock on the door is from the inside in hell rather than the outside. Very provocative ideas. Um, you know, again, kind of challenging us to kind of think about things. Miracles, where he talks about the supernatural. Is it, is it logical and reasonable to talk about a supernatural event uh, in the modern world in which we live? Uh, There are a couple of books that came out after Lewis died. They're collections. Uh, You know, you have, for example, um, uh, you have uh, God in the Docks that has a a lot of his essays on theology and ethics. There's The Weight of Glory, again, essays on theology, on ethics. Um, Mere Christianity, which is a book that is the first Christian book I ever read. I, I go back to it every year. Um, I, I go back to it every year because I want to feel the way I felt when I first read it. Um, I, I want that. I want that voice. I want to hear that voice again in my mind, in my heart, of somebody explaining Christianity to me in very clear and careful terms. Um, and you know, so I come back to that book. I, I did something this year I'd never done before. I got a copy of my, of Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, but I listened to it on audio tape. So I was listening to somebody else read it and I was following along in my book. It was a little problematic because I want to underline things and they're, it's getting ahead of me, but it, it was kind of fun to go through that kind of experience. I was I was kind of listening to the voice of somebody else reading uh, in my mind. Uh, Surprised by Joy, which is his autobiography. Uh, The Four Loves. And of course, I love telling this story, uh, repeating the story uh, that Walter Hooper, who in 1963 went to visit C.S. Lewis and Lewis hired him as his secretary. Uh, Lewis never really had a secretary. I mean, that to me, that's crazy. Uh, but he but he didn't. Uh, but I th- I think Walter Hooper was almost a miracle of God because, the reason we know a lot about CS. Lewis, I think, is because of, of Walter Hooper. He he, d- you know, he found these unfinished manuscripts. He went back to publishers and said, look, Uh, I have an unfinished manuscript by Lewis. Will you publish it? But I'll give it to you if you'll bring two of Lewis's books that are out of print back into print. Hmm. And uh, Hooper was uh, an amazing uh, stalwart for the writings of C.S. Lewis. Well, uh, Hooper, of course, was an Anglican. Um, I I think when he was in America, he might have been Methodist or something of that nature. He's a Protestant. But I think he became an Anglican. Later in life, he became a Roman Catholic. And Hooper had a meeting with John Paul II, who today is St. John Paul II, uh, maybe the most important pope in 500 years. I mean, uh, John Paul II had a huge influence on, on Catholic thinkers. Um on the 20th century in terms of standing up to communism. I mean, we're, t- we're talking, after all, uh, John Paul was Polish and the Poles were brutalized both by the Russians and the communists. But uh, Hooper says he, he met with John Paul II and, and John Paul II said, yeah, I'm a C.S. Lewis fan. And I, I just got a kick out of that. I thought, wow. And uh, Hooper said that uh, John Paul II said that he thought Lewis's book, The Four Loves, was on the same level with the writings of St. Augustine. Now, that's not, you can't get much of a better compliment from a Pope than to say something like that. Um, and, and what I find interesting here is this: that, you know, Christians, Christians have very sharp very committed theological beliefs. And sometimes that causes tension and division. I mean, one of the things that broadly divides, I think, Christians is the question of predestination. Um, you know, I, I have a background in Reformed theology, and, uh, you know, when it comes to Reformed theology, issues like election, predestination the providence of God, are, are very critical parts of, of that Protestant tradition we know as the Reformed tradition. And not just them. Um, I've always made the point that if you're troubled by Calvin, you probably will be troubled by Luther and Augustine and Aquinas as well, uh, because Calvin didn't invent predestination you know, in the laboratory in Geneva. Um, but of course, there are other Christians who have a very different understanding of election. Um, and sometimes there's this clash and it, and largely this clash has been going on for 500 years, you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Um, well, you know, the point I'm making here is I'm amazed that I meet Wesleyan, Arminian, uh, Molinists, and they like, a lot of them like Lewis. Then I meet Reformed guys, and even they like Lewis, Catholics who like Lewis, Eastern Orthodox who like Lewis. It's almost as if he's kind of a universal Christian voice. Now, having said that, um, and because I'm such a a fan of C.S. Lewis, I do want to mention that there are people who are troubled by Lewis, Uh, There are people who take issues with the writings of C.S. Lewis. Um, I think it's clear Lewis didn't believe in biblical inerrancy. It's probable that Lewis's view of of the creation of human beings might have involved something like evolution. Uh, Some other people are troubled by Lewis in that, you know, he seems open to too open to the world's religions. Well, all of those are, are, are fair criticisms. Um, you know, all of those can be, can be brought to bear, but I still think it's an amazing thing that, um, you know, I, I read Wesleyan theologians, and are very disturbed by Reformed theology, then I read Reformed theologians that are disturbed by Wesleyan theology, and they all love C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Like, what? what is it? Um, what is it about Lewis that he's able to kind of, you know, he, he he appeals to people in such a way that They don't feel turned off by him. They don't feel threatened by him. They don't think, they they all kind of feel he's one of us, right? And I I think probably the only person I could say that other than Lewis might be Athanasius. Because St. Augustine, my my big hero, he is not liked in the East very much at all. He is the, the Eastern orthodox tradition, they view Augustine in very pessimistic terms. So, you know, the, this is kind of a remarkable thing. Um, let me touch on just one more thing. I know our time is getting away from us here. I, I just want to mention a little bit about, you know, some of some of Lewis's arguments, his argument from desire that that human beings have a longing for meaning and transcendence in life, and that that points toward God. In fact, I've been thinking about that particular idea, and I think that one of the ways that God's grace works in our life is he never allows us to become satisfied in anything else but him. I I think he loves us so much, and he doesn't want people to be lost that he in effect never allows us to be satisfied in anything outside of him. So making a lot of money, well, you know, gives you a lot of freedom. Uh you know, you can feel kind of comfortable when you know the stock market's not doing all that well. Well, you have so much money you could lose a lot of it and still be wealthy. Well, um you may not find making a lot of money is existentially fulfilling. And you know, I I've I've met uh, men who have had lots of women in their life, and, um, so you know, they might brag about it, but many of them, if you talk with them, they say those relationships, they they meant so little. Um, God doesn't seem to let us, he doesn't allow us to be satisfied. Now, now again, there's a lot that that doesn't say. Um You know, uh, but I think it's a powerful point that I I think the reason why hell uh, is such a central point in our theology is it has a way of not allowing you to feel comfortable without God. What if it's true? Wow. Another argument is the argument from reason that you need a source or a foundation for logic and rationality. And if it's, if it comes without a mind behind the universe, then there's no way to there's no way to ground its its consistency, its rationality. And then thirdly, the moral argument. Um, I love all the philosophical arguments for God. I think maybe my I think my I think my favorite might be the ontological argument. I I find that to be just gripping and powerful. But I love I love the various cosmological arguments, the teleological arguments, but you know a lot of people are gripped by the moral argument, um, and that that certainly would be consistent with Paul in Romans one and two, that that God has given us a conscience, and when we start thinking about our relationship with God, we realize we failed. So these are all, uh, I think good reasons to give, you know, consideration to Lewis as a public intellectual and, uh, you know, to read his books. And, uh, you know, there, there's a reason why he speaks to so many of us. So Joe, some, uh, I, I'm going to ask you guys some questions. Uh You can certainly go to classic Christian thinkers, that's that contains my the broadest writing I have of C.S. Lewis. But I want to ask the two of you, what are your favorite C.S. Lewis books and why?
2: Uh, I, of course, read as I already mentioned, like you can, the um, Mere Christianity over and over again. I'm rereading a book that I've read in the past, recently, called The Narnian by um, uh, Jacob, I think is his last name, Hmm. Alan Jacob. And uh, it's kind of almost in a sense a biography of Lewis, but it's focusing mainly on what we learn uh, with regard to his writings in the Chronicles of Narnia and uh any of these things are just fascinating to see what the intellectual thinking and the interaction going on within his mind and and all of the different topics that he addresses so uh that's that's something i'm i'm enjoying reading over again very good joe how about you what what lewis
1: books jump out at you as
0: being important I, I wish I had read more of them, but they're all on my list. But of the ones that I have read or reread, I agree with Dave and probably you as well. Mere Christianity is just one of those foundational uh, books. Uh, this, the way Lewis writes and speaks, you're, you're right, Ken, as you've been saying over and over, he speaks to so many and he speaks to us today. So that one is is one I like to go back to. Um, I'll, I'll give a couple others just because they're they're different um yeah, Yep. I, I think um a, a grief observed when i read that it's been some time i, I read that with the idea that if something bad happens i want to <laughs> i want to see how somebody else has has already talked about it so yeah um uh, that that was very helpful for for that and then uh, you mentioned uh, one that i think is kind of fun uh Uh, The Great Divorce. Uh, I I think that one is easy to read. Uh, You know, you you got a great bus driver there and uh, (laughs) to to ride along and and you really get into the characters. It's like, oh, how could you be that, you know, petty or that uh, selfish or whatever? So it's kind of of a fun, fun read. So for different reasons, I'll I'll just point out those three. Well, he's
1: always he's always take Lewis is always taking us on a journey. You know, right. we're, we're always journeying somewhere one last point about c.s lewis uh there is of course uh a statement about rock and rollers that that all rock and rollers are elvis impersonators mm. um you know some would admit more that than 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 others but elvis was kind of the original you know he was he was the real thing, and everybody else has just kind of come along and uh, impersonating him. I remember one person said, maybe all apologists are just C.S. Lewis impersonators. Hmm. <laughs> you know, we're just all kind of.
2: I would agree with Joe. I really liked The Great Divorce as well. I've read it multiple times and just appreciated the insight that he had on why the arguments that people give for why they don't uh, engage and follow uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, well, Joe, the next program, I want to talk to somebody who, I want to talk about someone who actually might be even better read than C.S. Lewis. Wow.
0: Okay. Uh, which is saying a mouthful. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, with that teaser, we hope you'll uh, uh, be sure and listen next time and invite uh, your friends and associates to listen as well. Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore case samples. And many of you have been doing that. And we appreciate it since you've been talking about books so much. Ken, here are a couple of people who have uh, commented about uh, yours. Here's one. It says, I just finished reading Christianity Cross-Examined and loved it. So please write some more books. Ginny Hinkst. So there you go, Ken. And there you go. You're not, you're not going to stop, uh, but uh, uh, nonetheless, take that encouragement. Yeah. And here's another one. I'm using your Seven Truths book to teach Sunday school on how Christianity changed the world. They only gave me three weeks, and I think every idea you offer is vital. I've landed on the image of God, God becoming man, and the problem of evil mixed with the moral questions only coherently answered by biblical revelation. I plan on seeing if any other churches are interested in the full series. I'm grateful for your work and your video contributions on RTB from Ben Winemaker. So thank you, Ben, and thank you, Jenny, for those uh, comments. Uh, So Ken, keep doing what you're doing. People have come to appreciate, uh, as Dave and I have, reading your books and editing them and uh, hearing you talk about them on this podcast. We sure hope uh, other people will get excited as well. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking.
2: Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.